What's up, everybody? My name is John Campioni. I am a chiropractic physician and a rock tape instructor. I am sitting here having the pleasure to speak with Adam Wolf. Adam is the owner and director of Real PT Physical Therapy. He is a physical therapist. He is a licensed massage therapist, as well as a fellow of Applied Functional Sciences through the Gray Institute. Adam is also adjunct at a uh, adjunct faculty member, rather, at Rocky Mountain University of Health Sciences. Adam, welcome. What's up, man? John, what's up, man? Thank you for having me here. Yeah, you have such a unique uh, perspective on kind of what we do. Uh, it's uh, always a fun time talking to you and listening to you speak too, man. So uh, I'm very eager to get into uh, kind of what you have to say and kind of talk about how you teach some of our courses out uh, with Rock Tape. But uh, one of the questions I ask everybody, really, it's becoming a tradition, or at least I'm forcing it to become a tradition, is what got you started uh, with Rock Tape? So what got me started with rock tape is social media, I guess, to be really honest, to, per- to be perfectly honest, for the first majority of my career, uh, at least first half, probably, I-, I really poo-pooed tape, particularly stretchy tape. I couldn't really get my head around it. And I couldn't get my head around it because of the background that I had uh, in movement and, and I, you know, sort of from a, a motion, not muscles concept. And the way that I initially learned uh to, to tape with this sort of tape is, uh, you know, from a muscle perspective and distal to proximal or proximal to distal, distal to facilitator inhibit. And I just couldn't get my head around it. Why would I tape a muscle if I didn't really believe in muscles? So I didn't really mm-hmm. wor- work with it or touch it on it. And then, you know, through social media and frankly, uh, Perry Nicholson, Stop Chasing Pain, who I sort of uh, through social media struck up a friendship with. And we started talking and I would see that he would use tape a little bit through social media. This is probably five years ago now, maybe four years. I don't know, four or five years. And, uh, uh, and I was teaching a course on movement out in New Jersey and I invited Perry to come who I didn't know, but he showed up. It was a one day course and he sort of sat smack in the front of the room when you kind of, it was really intimidating for me because I didn't really know him and he was a big guy, if you know Perry. And anyway, so him and I struck up a conversation and it was just good. We just kind of went from there. He brought me some tape, uh, sort of a stop chasing pain rock tape that he has and uh, gave me a few rolls to work with. And I went back to Chicago and started playing with it. And through that, uh, sort of at the talking a little bit on social media, Steve Capobianco and getting a little bit more information about the tape, why about this and that. And, you know, as, as we know, we tape motions, not muscles. And when I, uh, heard that it sort of made sense to me and it sort of could fit into what I was trying to do and uh, sort of went from there. More conversations with Steve. He asked me if I wanted to be an instructor and uh, I said yes. And that was, I don't know, we, you were there the first year I was there. So how long is that, man? I was track four years. I think? I think it's been about four years. Yeah, that's right. We yes, both came on kind of the same five, time. So it was around five, that was around five years ago, I think. So that's my that was my journey into rock tape. And uh, it's been great. It's really enhanced my practice a whole lot because it uh, aligns very nicely with my paradigm of treatment, which is, as I said, movement, not muscles, and that we're really affecting the nervous system anyway. And, you know, I think one of the big powerful things about the tape is that it, uh, for me, is that it can help with behavior change. And that's really where I've been fascinated about and kind of trying to help to learn and for a bunch of reasons. So that, that's my journey. That's pretty interesting just to how you kind of describe it with the, the, the paradigm shift and, and the way that you describe your practice, just kind of knowing, knowing you uh, from the number of years that I, that I have and, and listening to you talk about movement, you said something right there uh, about not believing in muscles. And um, 
as we know, you're a fellow with uh, the Gray Institute and in Applied Functional Sciences, and they have such a amazing perspective on movement and a unique, uh, you know, way of describing it. So kind of tell us a little bit about your paradigm. Tell us what you mean by not believing in muscles and, you know, tell us how that kind of uh, got shifted into what you're doing now and how that's all evolved. Uh, so Applied Functional Science is invented by a physical therapist named Gary Gray, who I, uh, he would define applied functional science as the merging of the physical, behavioral, and biological sciences, uh, and sort of that it's the integration of those three sort of things. And to me, it sort of sounds also like mind, body, spirit, mm -hmm. and it also, it also sounds, sounds like, like biopsychosocial, if you think about it. And the fact is that it's integrated and you can't separate them out. And yeah, so, in a way. Within a movement context, I think what that means is that uh, there are some consistency, what I call consistencies uh, in movement that we can't really argue with. And if we look at it from that perspective, then very rarely do muscles create motion during most activities. They sort of control motion that's presented to it and uh, they can create motion. That's how we've named the, the way muscles work in, in, in the books a lot of times. And so, for example we say the quadricep extends the knee. If you look at any book that we say the quadricep extends the knee or the hamstring flexes the knee or the bicep flexes the elbow or whatever muscle picket, you look in the book, it talks about the concentric shortening action first. And while that certainly is the case in isolation, if you lay a lifeless body on the table and you look at two points and bring them together, then the you know muscles or the joints going to shorten. And so we say that the quadricep extends the knee because when we bring the two points together of that stuff that sits between my patellar tendon and up towards the proximal end of my thigh, and we shorten that and the knee straightens. So we say the knee is a, you know, a quadricep is a knee flex or extensor. But the reality is, is it doesn't work. We don't work in isolation like that. When we're walking, we don't, your quadricep doesn't extend your knee when you're walking. It can in movements, but it doesn't. And what it really does would slow my knee from flexing. As Gary would say, we need to sort of flip that. It can't extend the knee. What it's really going to do is control my knee from flexing. So if I'm standing up t tall and my quadricep goes out, uh, I'm going to go down to the ground. I'm not going to be able to stand tall. Uh, and so my quadricep, while it can't extend my knee, is really going to control the, the motion. It's going to control my knee from flexing. And that's only in the sagittal plane. It also works in the frontal and the transverse plane. And so that, uh, that's sort of an example of, uh, a, a, and it does it with a whole bunch of muscles and joints above it and below it. That's sort of the way I look at it. So it, it can create force. It really is going to reduce and control force uh, and the forces that are presented to it. And those forces include, uh, you know, these things that we can't really argue with. It doesn't matter your background, how you come into it. Uh, gravity, we can't argue with that ground forces, uh, ground reaction, we've heard. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so the harder I hit into the ground, the harder the ground is going to hit back up into me. We can't really argue with that. Uh, mass, we can't argue with mass. We know it exists. Momentum, we can't really argue with momentum. We know it exists. And so if we think about the fact that the body is continually controlling gravity, ground reaction, mass, momentum, uh, for me, that sort of changes the perspective of what happens. The body, uh, muscles can produce force, but what it's really going to do, in my experience, is control forces presented uh, and translate that into, you know, the load into the explode, as Gary Gray would say. So that's my really long-winded answer about what applied functional science or my interpretation of what applied functional science is. It's, it's understanding that concept of three-dimensional movement, that the body exists in three dimensions, that the body exists using uh, drivers and that is sort of driven through space. Uh, when I take my, my right hand and rotate it 
behind me in space. I'm going to get uh, left and I look straight ahead. If I'm, if you're sitting there tall, John, and you're looking at your computer screen and you take your right hand and rotate it all the way behind you at shoulder height in space. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at the computer screen, you have left cervical rotation. Yeah. And so there's this subconscious reaction that occurred. I didn't tell you to move your head to the left or get left rotation. It just happens because I know that it's going to be driven that way. And so that's sort of uh, some examples of, of the, the context in which you can look at the way the body works. There's driven reactions occur. And if you know what should occur for any intended action, you know, frankly, you just need to recreate the motions that, that an action would, you know, need to, con- what you need to control for any action. And if you know how to recreate it, you can drive the body in space to see if that reaction you would have expect to happen happens and if it doesn't you have to ask why so if i know what should happen when i drive the body somewhere in space or move you in space i could see if that that will the expected reaction happens or not and if not the question then for me becomes well why doesn't it and that leads down you know any number of rabbit holes do you ever look back go ahead do you ever look back on on your uh evolution of education because you know in high school, if you, if you had anatomy, but college, and then maybe even in PT school, like we were taught that principle of muscle shorten, they bring origin to insertion and this is how they work. And as you said, they, they are there, we are taught about them as if they were in isolation, but absolutely everything you said was true that they never work in isolations and they work very differently than what we're taught. Do you ever look back at that and just kind of wonder why that is? Do I think about why we've named muscles that way? Why it's still taught like that? Uh, convenient. I was having a conversation today with a really experienced uh, athletic trainer and uh, the conversation went around because, you know, that's the way I was taught and, you know, they fall back on these things. I think that there's some of that that occurs, of course. And you know, I sort of joke that the paradigm of like that isolated muscle function is uh, I blame Cybex and Nautilus and uh, <laughs> how, how would have they made money from a room full of nothing, which is frankly what you need if you want to be able to load specific tissue efficiently. And so, you know, I kind of joke with that. Now, let, let me also clarify that based on my understanding more of like neurology and pain science and all these sort of things and understanding that when you have pain, uh, that immediate changes in your brain occur and that over time you lose representation in your somatosensory cortex to these painful regions. So uh, I think there's a lot of value in, in regressive thought processes and being able to ensure that specific muscles can fire in isolation. You know, for example, if you have like a hip pain or low back pain, you're not going to have as much representation of your glutes in your somatosensory cortex. And if that's the case, you know, I can give you the sexy three-dimensional lunge, which is awesome. But if you don't perform it correctly, (laughs) the regressive thought process, and you can't tweak it through a drive and a simple solution, there needs to be a regressive thought process. And for me, that really more and more, in fact, John, includes isolation you know i I would be appalled with myself as a clinician like my my, me as a physical therapist uh in year two of being a clinician 10 years ago or 11 years ago at this point i would be appalled with myself if i just saw myself giving people movements and exercises to do because i wouldn't understand the thought process of why i might want to have somebody hold a gloop you know a a sideline clamshell or whatnot for a minute or two minutes at a time Mm -hmm uh, back in the day, you know, but, but now I understand that the, that if, you know, a, if I can't do that, there's some problems there, but B the isometric, the value of isometric contractions, right. And then the value of isometric contractions in terms of, uh, uh, non-inflammatory processes and the value of them also in terms of finding representation in the somatosensory cortex. So my, you know, my point of that is, is as important as movement is and understanding three-dimensional movement and which is uh, like the foundation of everything that I do frankly like uh 
you know, understanding and being able to work in isolation, I, I find more and more value in. Excellent. So, um, talk a little bit about how I don't know if that answers your question. Dude. No, definitely did. Talk a little bit about how you're using some of the rock tape tools. You know, you said that tape really did kind of help with a lot of this perspective and really kind of uh, using it as a tool to help with the treatments that you're they're providing, whether it be something in isolation or those sexy 3D lunges. You know, what can tape or even the tools to to uh, take it even further really help you as the clinician do what you want to do with the patients? Yeah. So like I use rock tape, uh, in in any number of ways. I mean, obviously like how we teach it in terms of pain decompression and neuro reeducation and sort of really try to stick to those simple principles because it does simplify my thought process. And, um, you know, the way that I think about it and I could probably, I could have probably it's, you know, it's kind of in the evening, man. I had a beer. I was tired today. So, but I I got rambling in the evening, but, uh, some made it, I made it, uh, uh, movement in terms of victims and criminals. And that's sort of my thought process, right? Victims scream and criminals remain silent. And so if you're, you know, another way to say that is the site of the pain isn't the cause of the pain. Mm-hmm. And so if your shoulder, knee, low back, neck hurt you, it's probably not your shoulder, knee, low back or neck's fault, right? It's like, uh, those are the victims or the ones that are screaming, victims scream, right? But the criminals are above or below it. It's your foot, hip, thoracic spine most of the time. And Gary would say that as well. And so understanding that the site of the pain isn't the cause of the pain, I think is a, is a big component of my thought process. Uh, and so I, I like to, in terms of pain, I like the tape because I can tape the victims and give them a hug. You know, it's like a compressive down regulative, uh, way to help to support a, a region. Mm-hmm. And it's been proven through science that like compression does that to things. So it's sort of, I, I envision that around the sites of pain a lot of times that, that the tape is a big hug. I think anybody that pain for me, there's a lot of consistencies that I've seen, including being sympathetic in nature rather than parasympathetic. And also uh, that, that they probably require behavior change uh, if they're going to do what's needed, right? Like if you sit, if you're great at, you know, I kind of joke with people, you know, they, I, have, I have neck pain, I have shoulder pain. And I say, I bet you're great at your job. And you want to know how I know, because I bet you sit at your computer for like seven hours in a row, you get so into what you're doing and you just sit there and go, go, go. And before you know it, you're in this position for an hour and a half that you is not good for your, for your low back or your neck or your shoulder. Uh, you know, and so you need to learn the behavior of not sitting there and getting up and moving or standing and working or whatever it is, right. Mm -hmm. Being aware of your position in space. And so for me, like behavior change. So I'll, you know, as simple as putting those two pieces of tape down the middle of your back. So when you feel the tape, you know, for me, it's always when you feel the, I see to people a lot, when you feel the tape, I want you to say to yourself, Hey, I feel the tape. Mm -hmm. I must not be doing blank or, Hey, I need to make be checking. Am I doing this? Like I had a patient last week who has a shoulder pain and she has uh, it's coming from her jaw in terms of like, she's always clenching and the resting positions and, and all of those things. So, so while she has shoulder pain and I've like can tape her shoulder and all that, that wasn't resolving. What resolves it is like working on her jaw a little, bringing her awareness of like the position that she finds herself in. And so I put the tape on her mid back, but I say to her, Hey, I want you to say, when you feel the tape in your mid back, I want you to say, Hey, I mean, I feel the tape. Where are my teeth right now? Are my teeth touching? Or am, am I, am I clenched? Am I side? Where am I been positioned in space? Because then you can say to yourself, Hey, I'm not in a good position. And then what that does is it brings awareness to it for you to then make those behavior changes that are important. So I tend to use it like on that context a lot in terms of behavior change to trigger a question mm-hmm. to ask yourself in terms of where you want to be or like to take, hey, I feel the tape, take a deep breath, 
yeah. long, slow exhale. Let's t- stimulate parasympathetic responses. You know, any of those type of things. I find myself more and more using the tape for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, over striders, you're running and you overstride, I put it on your hamstring or you cross over, I put it on your, you know, crossing your knee into your IT band type region. And so these things to remind yourself, but more and more for me, it's behavior change. I think that that's the power of the tape. And then of course, the decompressive effects, right? The lifting and, and, you know, patellar tendons and or, you know, patellas that hurt and, uh, bruises and, you know, all, all those kind of pieces. I love how you say that too. Uh, the, the behavior aspect of tape, cause no, no one really talks that much about it. We all really gear it towards movement, but I mean, behavior movement, it's all output from the brain. So it's all the same, to, man. Right? Yeah. One second that. behavior is like, yeah. Apprehension of a movement. And that comes from, you know, that's a behavior. And do you hear that beer being opened, dude? I do. Yeah. Well, we mean, you, does, uh, did you use your, uh, did you use your rock blade to open up that? Beer? <laughs> I should have. All right. <laughs> so I'm very interested in some of the, the common things you see in practice because of your unique, unique perspective on movement and, and really assessment too, is, you know, I know you approach everything very differently, regardless of what's being presented. You could have three different shoulder patients and they're all very, very different. So, um, I, it's ridiculous as a question as this sounds, I would love to hear kind of your thought process on when you have someone in front of you, what do you kind of go through with them, take through, what do you want to see from them as far as evaluating them? And then how does that kind of take you down the pathway of the tools you want to use? What am I looking at and how and why? I guess I just want to, like, how deep do you want me to go? First of all, you want me to get technical or keep it superficial or what, what are we going for here? Go technical. Let's do it. Let's get crazy. I mean, I guess like, <laughs> I mean, I, uh, what am I looking for? I guess like more and more, I, I've really tried over, let me preface it by saying I've really tried, like I got really deep into like the three-dimensional movement and understanding what's happening in each plane of motion for any specific task, mm-hmm. what the Gray Institute would call transformational zones. And I, you know, they're really important and it's good to understand like that at times, but what my, having taught a lot and having talk to a lot of clinicians, I find that the frustration is that like, why do I need to know that all the time? And so I've like really tried to simplify my thought process in terms of when I need to know it. And sometimes it's important to know if my tibia is not getting internal rotation Mm -hmm. at the first phase of gait, right? If I don't get enough internal rotation timing wise, and my femur gets more than my tibia at this wrong time, then my knee feels the wrong. So like sometimes that's important to understand, but at other times I, I don't need to, I can be more simple. And so my studies over the past probably year and a half through Fnoro and studying neurology, functional neuro orthopedic rehab type stuff. And just this, you know, more neurological perspective is like the thought process of treating capacities rather than anatomy. And can I anchor to what's consistent research that's out there and, and really just try to simplify things. So more and more, like I just look to what everyone needs to do and that's gait a lot. And so I look at capacities of gait and how well can you heel strike? What are the angles at your foot? you know, how much dorsiflexion or plantar flexion at heel strike, how much knee extension, how much hip flexion do you have at heel strike at mid stance? What kind of hip, you know, adduction control do you have at toe off? Are you getting, so all these kind of pieces that we can anchor to that everybody that has, that needs to walk has to go through. And if you're going to have problems there and you're a runner or that you're like, you know, you know, another athlete, you're going to have some compensations and some other things. How well can you squat? Like those type of things. I, I tend to look at more and more on everyone and just sort of like anchor to like a gate process. So there's that, uh, Within that, I think some of the capacities I want to maintain control of, I want people to be able to keep a costo pelvic relationship more and more. Like I used to just start at the feet with everybody, but now I think I start at the 
the costal pelvic relationship. And sometimes that's influenced by the feet, but yeah. simply because there's more representation in the brain and I'm trying to make quick brain changes, it makes more sense to me to start at the costal pelvic area. You got the glutes, there's the most space in the brain for the glutes. So I think about first, you know, driving, driving glute input for anyone in pain. So I'm looking at the costal pelvic relationship. Do you dump in your thoracal lumbar fascia mm -hmm. or in your thoracal lumbar junction? It's another way to say that, right? Yeah. So can you make, or can you maintain that relationship as you go through movement? For example, if you go overhead, uh, with an activity, one or two hands and you dump into your low back, you lose the relationship between your ribs and your pelvis. That for me is an issue. We need to be, teach you to maintain how to do that. Then we got to dive down and go, why is it? Is it your hip that's tight and you can't get extension? Is your shoulder tight and you can't get it? You know, whatever it becomes, I don't know. Can you not get thoracic extension? That's where you need to dive deeper. Go back. Why, why can't you maintain that? Go back real quick. You said something about the glutes, the, the most space for, uh, in the brain for the glutes. Talk about that a little bit. Elaborate on that. Well, the homunculus, which we teach about in rock tape, yeah. you know, in space in the somatosensory cortex and these regions of uh, your brain that have representation and that there's re there's representation. And so your glutes, which are the there's the biggest muscles in your body, right? Like yeah. you've got a lot of glutes for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so you're th therefore going to have more space in your brain for your pelvic region right especially your glutes yeah. and so why not try to drive a lot if we're trying to make brain changes frankly for any region if i'm trying to get sh your shoulder region if i want to get your shoulders working better and get more space in your brain when you have shoulder pain because i know that if you have shoulder pain uh you're going to uh have less space in your brain for your shoulder right uh -huh. so why not drive as much input in your brain as possible and why not then fire your glutes through a band or whatever you know as you're going to like you know isometrically engage your glutes as you do something for your shoulder to drive input because the research shows that intense isometric contractions have a lot of you know for periods of time have a lot of uh neuroplastic changes to the brain yeah. right so maintaining the costal public relationship becomes important so that's one the other one the second one for me or another one for me, it's not even like a hierarchical order okay. here. It's probably the wrong one. But, you know, costal pelvic relationship, uh, scapular complex, how well can you keep that? Is there, you know, anybody, if you have shoulder pain and you go up overhead and, you know, how many people do you see, John, that have like an upper trap and pec minor type of, uh, uh, you know, overhead strategy for their scapular complex rather than a serratus, low trap, mid trap type not, you not know, even strategy? people who do a lot of overhead stuff. It's just something that kind of comes with a lot of uh, the sedentary lifestyles too. Well, absolutely. Right. So like to teach people and then, so you're not, you know, you, we, I want people to engage their serratus, right. That's such a power muscle. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and the low mid trap. So like driving that, but being able to maintain like a cervical retracted position through motion, you know, and not dump into your cervical thoracic junction. That's another one that I think is really important for people to do through movement. And, you know, again, that overhead, I'm going to go overhead with one or two hands. If the dump isn't in the costal pelvic region a lot, and the dump into the thoracal lumbar junction, the dump typically the compensation is going to come through the cervical thoracic junction and so you know to be able to teach somebody a to cervically retract their head mm -hmm. i think becomes really important and be able to do it the right way and you know i've got i've, I've learned and, and picked up some good strategies on how to do that uh uh that those are those are the, the the movement ones that i look at for everyone you know can you maintain a cervically retracted position when you go overhead can you keep a scapular you know downward position serratus couple a couple serratus and mid low trap or truffle i guess or do you use the pec minor upper trap and then can you maintain the rib pelvis relationship those are that's me being simplified man <laughs> and then that's my first layer and then diving deeper and then on top of that looking at the vestibular and the cerebellar systems because that's this higher level sensory integration because if you have neck or shoulder pain as we know right like uh -huh. you're going to have uh you're going to have vestibular issues absolutely right? oh i love that you say that i get the tingles when somebody says cerebellar and vestibular love it well, it's 
Well, I mean, it's true, but like if you, you know, if anybody, how many people do you see that? Have like, I have right knee pain and right shoulder pain. Uh-huh. And then you have, and so you're like, okay, well, what's going on on the left side of your brain right away? That's mm-hmm. exactly the first thing that I think now. Yeah. And then I check like rapid alternating movements. I know that's your thing right now. And I haven't checked the vestibular and all these kind of cerebellar. So if you've got, I mean, how many people do you see that have like right knee pain, right shoulder pain, and you have them do a rapid alternating movement in their upper and lower extremities and they're worse on their left. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now you start going, okay, what's going on the left side of your brain now? So why can't we condition and try and drive our, our rehab to creating left cerebellum and, and left brain, left, you know, cortex input, right? We got to change brain. We got to create plastic changes. And so why can't I get the glutes firing with the shoulder with a cervical position as I'm doing a rapid alternating movement on the left? I mean, that's more and more the way I think. It's an interesting thing to see with the paradigm shift with a lot of uh, the rehabilitation sciences is, you know, when somebody says vestibular rehab, it's a very specific thing. You talk about patients with things like vertigo, et cetera, et cetera. But now we're seeing it so much more and more in rehab just because we know how influential the vestibular is, the system is with you know midline cerebellum and how it is going to help do, be dictating movements. And some, something, something as little as plantar fasciitis can be related all the way up to those highest levels of the brain. So we're seeing like that humongous paradigm shift in that direction there. Are you seeing that a lot with some of your, your colleagues? They're starting to shift into that direction. Like when you talk to some of our participants in our seminars, are they starting to kind of add this into their practice or is this something that you, you feel you're maybe introducing to a lot of them? <laughs> uh, I think that I'm probably introducing them to a lot of them. Yeah. I find like just, you know, I'm sort of like an early adapter of things if you look at that at scale, but uh, even, you know, I think a lot of the PTs that I've observed, you know, I sort of have, uh, I've been fortunate to a lot of my buddies and uh, people that I've learned from are through the Carrick and these functional neurology type people. And so I think one of the things I find really fascinating is the way they look at it from a central mechanism span- standpoint, rather than like if you got a vestibular vertigo and it's more like just treating the symptoms a lot of times. Okay, let's get rid of the BPPV. Let's do this. But why are you getting it? And where's the, you know, the specific pathways? I find that really interesting. My learnings, what, what's, what I find really frustrating for myself right now, John, is like I sort, I sort of find myself butting up against my limits of knowledge on this information that we're talking about, like fairly quickly compared particularly to like my movement understanding you know what i mean and so uh but i find it really interesting i think it's really fascinating and and since i've been learning about it which has been for about a year to a year and a half like a little bit more intensively uh the vestibular and the cerebellar system right like if i've been i've been interested since i've looked for it how many people have sub uh sub vestibular sub subcerebellar integration issues that uh that is you know that are going undiagnosed because we're not looking for them and if you know for me if you have like if you have to always do your exercises or your pain comes back you're like a year ago you were at pt and you were taught like a movement or a lunge or a stretch or whatever and you do it for a few weeks if and then you like don't do it for a couple of days you're like, oh, my pain comes sure. back like that shouldn't be the case like a year later like two years later and i see that a lot and if that's the case if you have to do your exercise yeah, so divi- or your pain comes yeah. back you're not integrating it you've like you're, you're that's something that you're having to like work hard in your brain to be able to do sure. uh it's you know for me you only have to do exercise for a few for a few weeks and if you haven't you know before things change before you need to do a different exercise so define that a little and bit so, more or the, progress the, or sub sub cerebellar um uh issues you were talking about define that subclinical a little bit. like subclinical i mean how many people i mean since you've been checking like, that was a great example about like for the person that has like uh the the multiple injuries in the same joint or the person that has like a bunch of injuries on the same side of their body. I start thinking the brain and then you check rapid alternating movements, right? Like any number of them. And if you have a number of rapid alternating movements on one side of the body 
that are limited. If you're like worse on your left with, you know, hands up down or the palms up down, whatever, whatever the rapid alternating movement is, or tapping your heel against your shin and it's all on the left and you have all right pain. Uh, what's going on in the left side of your brain? What's going on in your left side of your brain? There's gotta be something that's integrating from your, even in terms of, I've been playing with like, uh, I, I muscle test and stuff like that. And so the people that I've, you know, like sort of the lighter muscle, not Kendall, Kendall, I know you know what I mean, right. but playing with sort of integrating some of these pieces about, uh, uh, checking to see if the you know are, is your or is your canals playing into it like doing a a, a romberg or a tandem romberg mm-hmm. and seeing if you fail in the tandem romberg and i know like you posted something the other day like right if you're like you know i, I don't i try not to post too much because i get in arguments so but i thought to myself like you know you're leaning to the left yeah okay great left side better i totally agree with you but what happens then if you if you put yourself into the canals right what if you just side bend left and put yourself in the left canals yeah. uh the horizontal canals on the left and then you do the romberg does and you, does it clean up or you go to the right does it get worse right yeah. or if i go to the posterior and anterior and if i can make it better and worse like in the you know alternating if i can rotate you to left and go to the left posterior canal and you get better in a romberg if your if your eyes are closed and your head is back to the left and when your eyes are closed and your eye your eye, your head is down to the right or down you know side bent right and rotated left and you get worse well there's your placing in the canals and you can check it that way and you can you can verify that through muscle testing too i don't yeah. want to go down this rabbit hole too much we'll lose too many people but <laughs> there's all sorts of ways to see if you can make something better and worse based on placing them in the in the you know taking an established neurological test the rapid alternating movements i do this all the time next time you're there take a rapid alternating movement when you find that it's deficient yeah. Put place them in the canals, yes. right? There's six options: side bend left, side bend right. You know, then rotate left and side bend left, or rotate left and side bend right, and then rotate right and side bend left, and rotate right and side bend right, and put them in all those. And if you can go in one direction and then go in the exact opposite direction and make it better and worse, you're, uh, you know, if you rapid alternating movement, you you side bend left, it gets worse. You side bend right, it gets a lot better their canals are playing into it. And so you can start to tie these tests. In. And so even though they don't have like BPPV and they don't have like an astagmus or a really undetectable one by the eyes anyway, right? There's nothing that's dramatic. Uh, you can you can go ahead and do the, the Epley's or reverse Epley's or the barbecue rolls and you can retest these neurological tests and you're going to see different things. Yeah. So that's sort of what I mean a little bit. Like, so for example, you know, I'll, I'll do that when I'm doing a basic neurological test, close your eyes and put your fingers to your nose, yeah. do the rapid alternating movements, do the Romberg tandem Romberg. The next piece for me and was checking the subclinical stuff is putting them into the canals and retesting them. And for then for the muscle testers that are out there, yeah. find a weak muscle on one side and a strong muscle on the other side. And it doesn't matter which one. And you can use those as indicators and you can like place them. If you can find like a, a right lat that's inhibited, you know, a weak, uh, a, a no on the right. It's we're going to get an inhibitor or whatever. You muscle test them. It's a no on the right. You muscle test them. It's a yes on the left. You put them in the canals. If you can make both strong and both weak or both yeses and both nos, your canals are playing into it, right? You can use it as an indicator. You can use muscle testing as an indicator for vestibular function if you want to go down that rabbit hole. So yeah. there's all sorts of ways that you can check it. But based on that, and if you're not, if you if you can't cervically retract and you've got right shoulder pain and you've got right knee pain and you, we rapid alternated movement and your left side is bad on both sides, I'm driving a bunch of input. All I think is left brain, driving input to the left brain in as many ways as possible with as many systems as possible. Excellent. So was that more or less than you wanted? Dude, Dude it is uh, always less because I want more and more when you're talking. I'm rambling, man. You got me going here. <laughs> it's not that hard, Adam. You have to admit that, right? You can get you going pretty easily. Well, once, yeah, well, yeah, in the right context, man. Yeah, but like. Yeah. No, I love it. I, you know, I, I'm good at monologue. Monologue's good for me. Dialogue is where I get difficult. <laughs> I use uh, 
that's a personal bond. That's my psycho social. I use the muscle testing uh, all the time. You're absolutely right. And I, I get on this tirade a lot uh, when, when I'm talking to different people is, is people have a bad connotation for muscle test because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So they're thinking about muscles in isolation and then people want to make the argument, oh, muscles don't work in isolation. But, um, and tell me if you agree with this or not is, is, Muscle testing is an output from the brain. It's a neurological test. It's not about the muscle that we slap the name onto it because it never works in isolation anyway. So when you place the the glenohumeral joint in extension, medial rotation, and then adduction, we call it like testing the lat, but there's other muscles involved with that. So for me, it's more of a joint position sense. And then as you so wonderfully described, just changing positions of the canals, for instance, is using that muscle test as an indicator, using that position as an indicator and seeing the output from the brain. Is that kind of how you're thinking about that? Yeah, I had really hard time muscle testing for the beginning when I learned it because I came from this movement, not muscle background. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, well, why am I testing a muscle? This doesn't make sense. Yeah, to I've rationalized it because uh, really what I'm doing is testing a region of the brain that we're calling the lab right? We're just, that's the name that the brain that we as the brain knows what the lat is, the body doesn't, your body knows how to control that motion with this specific tissue. So I'm really testing regions of the brain is the way that I look yeah. at that. When, when I'm doing muscle, quote unquote, muscle testing. Now, on top of that, I can very easily test motions. Also, I can like put you in a position and see how steady you are, like stand really tall and then push on somebody, you know, try to push them to the right or try to push them to the left. And if they can stabilize in one place and not stabilize in the other direction, you know, or stabilizing one and not in the other, well, like that's an inhibition, then it becomes where is it and all those kind of pieces. And anytime I'm muscle testing, I mean, what did I look for? I sort of talk about because muscle testing goes down these rabbit holes and I get it. And, you know, it's nothing to anchor to objectively, but it's, it's a place to start. And, you know, nobody got better by a muscle test either is what a friend, uh, Dr. David Traster says from the functional neurology, but, but the muscle test guides me to like, where do I start with? And, you know, it provides me specificity in terms of, do I want to stretch or strengthen the muscle? Because understanding that stretching is going to downregulate it most times and strengthening is going to upregulate yeah. it, specific, particularly in isolation, if we're going to look at it in isolation, which the body isn't. You know, there are, there are certain, there are many, many instances where if you have like a quote unquote inhibited psoas, if I lay you down and I chest your psoas, it's a no. And then I go ahead and like, we're deeming it inhibited and I stretch your hips in all three planes of motion. In, in integration and then i lay back down and test it in isolation your hip will fire just fine that muscle right so there's not like a it's not a concrete rule but it provides me what muscle testing does is, is it provides me a place to start and it provides me a little specificity as to if i want to stretch or strengthen. it's a tool right it's a tool man yeah it's just a place to start and the, the piece that i think is really important that it gets missed a lot and why it's been poo-pooed up to this point especially by you know, certainly my profession as a physical therapist more than yours is because, you know, it's like, well, where's the evidence behind it? And there's so much like, there's so much subjectivity to it. And like understanding that we can anchor a muscle test, to any objective neurological test I've found. That's as long as you have the mindset on how to do it, you know, then the question just becomes like how to do that, but it's out. You can do it. Take any Romberg and verify it with like anything we just talked about. Well, there's also um, uh, procedure. I get protocol. I guess you could say it is, you know, um, uh, tester reliability is if you're not doing it, there is a right way to do it. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to win the test, as I've seen so many um, people, when I went to school, we went, yeah. we went over. Oh, please. Oh, please. Oh, yeah. please. Yeah. Oh, please. Oh, please. I love oh, the guy yeah. being my partner going, Oh dude, you're pretty weak. I'm like, you just jumped on my arm. I, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be able to hold that pressure. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as I tell you, like the, here are my three rules to muscle testing. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with rock tapes rules about swearing, by the way. So no F bombs, but everything else. You is got it, man. <laughs> uh, the three rules for muscle testing for me, 
understand your anatomy. You got to understand anatomy. You got to know where muscle starts and ends, 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 right? Mm-hmm. I don't even call them origins and insertions anymore because this, the, where it pulls from changes depending on where the pull is coming, where's the drive coming from the top or the bottom. Yeah. So I call them attachments or whatever, start and ends. Uh, you got to understand your anatomy. Number two, you got to, you know, apply a perpendicular force to the line of pull of the muscle. That's what you have to do. And then number three, don't, don't give a shit about the outcome of the test. Okay. That's really the big one is don't care because, you know, because how because it's easy to influence the test. All you're looking for is, is it yes or no? Can you engage it or not? I think that's where the place to start with me, understanding that it's a neurological. And what I'm looking for is like, as Perry says, is there a neural grab or not? Is it a, and for me, that becomes, is it yes or no? How can I simplify things? That was a question you had. Is it a yes or no? If I test your muscle in isolation, mm-hmm. if I apply a perpendicular force to the line of pull of muscle, if I, like in isolation, you should be able to, from that muscle, engage it. There should just be a grab mm-hmm. from it. Yes, you can, or no, you can't. You're going to engage another muscle. If I fire your anterior delt, try to hold it, and you can't, off of how many times do you see the pec working or the upper trap working? That's the couple that they're going to use right? a lot of times uh, or whatever it becomes. And so that's where then you start to piece it together. Well, you know, understanding neurology and understanding motor control, which we talk about in rock tape and that some tissue become, you know, and understanding as we talk about with pain science is one of the studies we talk about is that uh, pains produce inhibitions. And so if there's something inhibited, uh, for me, I would define an inhibition as a, a latency in the muscle, the ability to delay in the timing of the muscle to engage like cleanly and, and, and when I want it to versus sort of like a ramp up. And the EMGs, what the EMGs show is that a, 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 a normal functioning muscle, when you fire it, there should be a two to three second ramp up, a two to three second steady state contraction and a two to three second ramp down. That's sort of what the research has shown on EMGs. On an inhibited muscle, when you fire it like that, there's a quick, sh- a short, st- a short spiky ramp up, a short spiky contraction, and then it just falls off. There's no ramp down of it. So an inhibit- inhibited muscle, there's literally a delay and it's just an inability to sustain a contraction in isolation. That's sort of the way that they're defining it. And so what I look for then, and that you, they're to know where are you pulling from first, right? Like in the place you pull from first is probably the place that I'm going to look for to be more connected in your nervous system. And these are just established by science. Like something's connected. If something's inhibited and there's a delay because we know that pains produce inhibitions, uh, something's inhibiting it. And then it just becomes for me, like, what is it? Very cool. Yeah. Uh, man, that was, that was great. I'm like, my wrist is tired from writing down all these notes. Are you writing all this? Yeah, no, I'm going to read, I'm going to just listen to it. That was a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) It's all these great gems, man. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, you're talking about driving input into the brain and, and, you know, we want to, uh, kind of talk a little bit more about those tools, you know, specifically, you know, being a rock tape podcast, let's talk about some of the rock tape tools. Like how do you specifically with the way you were describing driving input in the brain, you know, uh, uh, use the tape, use use uh, the, the rock blade, you know, and, and, and even if it's a specific tape application that you find to be a little bit more beneficial, uh, whether it be tweak taping or something else, you know, let, let us know what, what do you find as, uh, helpful when you're utilizing these kind of tools to drive, uh, that information in the brain the way you need to. So your question to me is how do I use the tool and the tape to drive ch- input change? Is that your question? Yeah. Well, I think about like, well, pain's an output, right? And that's the first thing that Steve has taught us to teach is that pain is an output. And if pain is an output uh, from a threatened nervous system, change the input. And input is any number of things, including you know, touch, pressure, tension, vibration, uh, thoughts, emotions. I mean, heat, cold, these are all inputs that into the brain. And how many people that have pain have like fear and anxiety, all those kind of pieces that we talked about. So 
you know, scraping and taping is what I wanted them to call the course, but the, the tooling, uh, the tooling and the way that we teach it, I really, it feeds into my thought process because certain tissue is going to be upregulated and downregulated. And so certain tissue is going to have less representation or more. We need to like take away the juice, steal the juice, something if it's facilitated and to give the juice to something else that's inhibited. And so that's a whole conversation I don't necessarily want to get into, but, but, you know, so we're teaching people with this tool uh, and whatever the tool is, if it's the scraper or if it's your hand or if it's the roller or whatever we're going to use to downregulate understanding these principles. And that if I like, I can downregulate a tissue by stimulating or ending. So I was talking about this today, like use the tool, the slow, long, slow, sustained pressure for what is it? Four to six uh, intensity for 30 seconds or so right over the area that's tender that's right. and you're stimulating Ruffini endings. And when you stimulate Ruffini endings, that's going to help to downregulate and it's going to help to stimulate parasympathetic responses, which by the way, are important to create behavior change. Anyway, you're not going to learn anything. If you're sympathetic, you got to be parasympathetic to create neuroplastic changes that are new. And that's been proven through science as well. So I can use this tool to downregulate and stimulate your, your Ruffini's understanding that after I downregulate something, I need to then upregulate something else, right? Victims and criminals. Something's not doing enough. Something's doing too much. So I need to stop the thing that's doing too much from doing too much. And then I need to go and like make the thing that's not doing enough do more. And that's then I'm going to go and stimulate and use a different stroke or do a different thought process to stimulate these proprioceptors, uh, the pacciniae corpuscles, right? Which we know that upregulate. And I need to be at a, a higher, uh, a one to th- or a two to four when I'm scraping at that level, or I'm going to use my tool and the intensity of the person. I want to be two to four, understanding that I need to be uh, vibratory and, and have some uh, choppiness to it almost. At roughly, I talk about like 180 beats for me. I think it's 120 to 300 is the number the the hertz that you want to be at the beats a minute and for me that number is 180 i really like 180 for a couple couple reasons one i can remember 180 because 180 has to do with like uh strides per minute when you're running and 180 also translates into three hertz and three hertz interestingly enough is the 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 resonancy of soft tissue your tissue vibrates uh, another way to say that your tissue vibrates at three hertz and that's 180 beats a minute so you just get in this nice rhythm at 180 for me so that's what i teach i want to after i down regulate through ruffini up regulate through the pecciniae because I need to bring more representation to the region that's probably mm-hmm. painful. And so that's sort of the way more and more that I gear towards uh, as I'm teaching. So after I do that, then I need to teach you behavior. You're something short, something's too, something's too short, something's too long. That short thing is probably too connected. Maybe not, but probably the long thing is probably not connected enough. Maybe not, probably. So I need to put you in a position. I need to make you aware of your position and because your behavior of sitting in a position or being in, doing something for a long time is playing into your dysfunction. So let's put the tape on to support you. So when you're in shoulders rounded forward and it should be pulled back, you'll be, hey, my shoulders rounded forward. What kind of position am I in right now? And I can drive that input into the brain in terms of the awareness, the thought, the awareness. Because if you don't know that you don't know, we need to make you know you don't know. The tape can help you to make you know you don't know a lot. And so uh, there's there's that component of it, I think, uh, a lot. That's how I tend to use the the tape. Also, like an example today, like uh, and yesterday, I was working with a guy who had common perineal, you know, uh, total total knee replacement. And when he drives for an hour, he gets pain sort of in the proximal lateral compartment of the, the, the leg, sort of the, the top part of the peroneus longus, we mm-hmm. can say. Uh, and, and, you know, it's really tender in there and it's only when he's driving. Right. And he's got like, uh, this foot that 
that it doesn't get a lot of motion through it. And so then his, basically his common perineal and his superficial perineal nerves were irritated and pissed off, right? Like get it. We got it moving a little better. Oh, it feels better when I'm, when my leg is externally rotated with my knee flexed and I'm sitting, I, I get pain in the lateral knee. And so we, you know, we found the spot where the superficial nerve or the deep nerve pierces into the superficial tissue and we cleared it up and sort of freed up that superficial nerve. And then we put a piece of tape over it with a decompressive strip just to lift it, to change the pressure, to keep the flow in it. So those are ways that I'll use like a tooling, whether it's scraping or whatever, and then combining it with taping. Was that more or less, man? I'm just keeping uh, it's going. just here. right, just, man. I love the, the you, right. I'm going to call it the human biology symbiosis you described there with the three hertz and the 180 beats per minute. That, that's so interesting that, you know, the residency of the tissue, the pace for running, like the, I love that you had a reason for exactly that number too. And just for everybody listening who maybe hasn't taken a blades course, Adam's talking about with uh, the two to four, he's talking about the, uh, um, our, our depth chart that we use with the tools. So two to four pressure is not very light, but light as we would describe it. And then your four to six is getting some depth to get those, those different receptors. Intensity. Yeah. How intense is it? How intense is this zero to 10? It's a one. Okay. How intense is this zero to 10? It's a six. Okay. Six. I know I'm deep. I know that I'm stimulating Rufinis. How intense is this? This is a two, three. Okay. I'm stimulating you. That's the thought process. And that's when someone owes you money, what do you use? He's... <laughs> how many people, how many people owe me money to come to see me because I've We're got using like, 10 on that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> like you're sly there. Do you know he's funny? He's quiet and uh, you got the, you're the one with the sense of humor. Drive. Ah, just take from, take what I can. I'm playing off of you, man. I want to ask you about um, your book, real movement. Um, it's been out. Uh, you published it in early 2017. Is that right? Published it in the end of December. Okay, of so just just around the, the turn of the year. There, I'm always fascinated with with you know knowing people who've written books and just that whole process. And I've read it myself, and uh, you know just not to blow smoke, but I, I loved it. It's, it you know taught me so many different things. And again, you know, I've said throughout this interview, just your unique perspective on how the human system works. But what was kind of your influences? Why did you write? A, why did you write, want to write a book? You want to hear the real story of why, yeah, man, how yeah. it started. <laughs> so Cassidy Phillips is a friend of mine and Cassidy Phillips invented and is the founder of trigger point performance products. So that's like the quad baller and the, 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 uh, footballer. And then he did the, 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 uh, tia, the, the rollers, the foam rollers. Like if now the famous one that he's got is the, uh, it's escaping me. He's going to kill me, but it's the orange one that's got the TRX on it. Anyway, TRX, not TRX, trigger okay, point, yeah. trigger point. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. So trigger point anyway. So I was friends with Cassie. I've known him for a long while. It's like almost as long as I've been a PT and just through a friend of mine. And so long story short, he hired me to write their level three clinical certification. And that was going to be for their trigger. They, what the, the certifications that I had on their foam rolling and release products were geared towards trainers. So he wanted to go more clinical and get more in. So as I wrote this, I started to write and he, I was going to get a percentage of it and blah, blah, blah. So I started to write and I put together all this stuff and I researched all the trigger points and I talked about movement and fascia and all these pieces. And then right as I was finishing it, it was a great project. We had a lot of fun collaborating on it. Um, uh, he sold the company to the company that owns New Balance and they never really did anything with it. So I was stuck <laughs> with this piece and I wanted to like, cut down. What am I going to do? So. So I went through and I edited and I took out everything that I didn't like about it. Like, what did I not believe in? Because as I was, you know, to be perfectly honest, and here's another conversation. I know we need to start wrapping, but like, 
as I was writing with trigger points, I was like, holy shit, I don't believe in trigger points. Like they don't exist. That's what Simon and Travell said. That's what they're, you know, and just all this research shows that trigger points, the way we're defining them don't exist. Right. And so I think about more and more that, you know, my favorite movie, by the way, is the princess bride and Inigo Montoya is my I love favorite the character. Princess bride. And like, you know, yeah, I mean like and the Tao, the, 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 Dar- the uh, Dharma of the princess bride is a great book I recommend, but Anigo Montoya, I do not think that word means what you think it means, right? So I think about all that all the time, particularly around like trigger points, which don't exist. It's been established. You don't have a knot in the muscle. It's a kink in the fascial tissue. And while you're calling it a trigger point, the, the words and the story you're telling around it is not really the way it is, right? So we just need to recontextualize. Do your trigger point work, needle, rub, whatever you do that works and that people feel better from. But give a different story. You're not like getting rid of the adhesion. You're not getting rid of the muscle. So You keep using anyway, the word. I, I you keep using that. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Yeah. So I think about oh, that's that's what I, I joke about that all the time in my in our profession, dude. I'm like, really? Is that really what you? <laughs> I've, think I've heard you really? in the back of rooms saying that. So yes. <laughs> yeah, I can I vouch for that. that means. Yeah. So yeah, that's like my that's like my eye roll emoji. A lot of times, that's really what I say. Anyway, so like I had this piece. I didn't believe the trigger one. I got rid of all the trigger point stuff. What did I have left? I had like the movement, the fascia. The, I wanted to talk about real and relative. So I kept writing and I wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I just had this piece that I wanted to do something with. So I did it. I was blessed to be able to get uh, some good people to look at it and give some good words to it, including Gary Gray, who wrote the foreword in the book. And uh, is what, what, what I was... A, Another reason it started is as I was sort of looking at it and writing this and putting my thoughts together, I started to look for things on real and relative motion, which we really haven't talked about. And, you know, another way to summarize applied functional science or my thought process is, is bones move, joints feel, and muscles react or joints perceive and muscles react. And so, you know, based on that thought process and understanding real versus relative motion and that the bones move, but if two bones move in the same direction at the same speed, the joint, which is the space between the bones, no, it doesn't necessarily feel anything. For me, it's about like, what is the joint feeling? That's really what I get mm-hmm. interested in is what is the joint feeling? And, if it, you know, bones can be rotating externally, but if one bone's going faster than the other, and it should be the other bone going faster, uh, you're going to have some issues. So, so I started to look for like, what's real and relative. And I had a conversation with Gary Gray and I said, you know, what's out there? And he said nothing. And the one thing that I found which is now two things that I found that talk about real and relative motion. One was a book, the visceral manipulation book by Jean-Pierre Barral. And I think it's page four on the, the first book of, by Jean-Pierre Barral, visceral manipulation. He says, he talks about in forward flexion, the, the, the hepatic liver folds forward faster than the top of the colon. And, and, and they're both moving forward in space, but the top goes faster than the bottom. And so it feels a flexion. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's, and then I started looking for it. And then the second one that I found, and there's a number of them, he doesn't call it this, uh, but is in the book Human Locomotion by Tommy Showed, who's a brilliant chiropractor. Uh, and if you have not heard about that book, uh, man, do I recommend it for everyone. Yeah, Human Locomotion, I, just such a I smart can second man. That, yeah. Really synthesizes information. Great book, well. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but he talks a lot about like, and, and the one that stuck out for me initially was when he talked about the, what the Poplidius does uh, in, in function. And, you know, and that's a whole other we got all these other conversations we have to come back to, Joe. <laughs> the pop latest. We could talk about that. You're giving us like an eight-part right? series, man. Let's just do, let's just go for it. Let's mm-hmm. see what we can do. <laughs> I'm gonna just we're gonna have basically a TED talk with just you, like an entire series of it, and it's just gonna be you. And I'm just gonna send you off on one topic and let you go. So strap in for that. <laughs> Real quick, though, honestly, uh, very quick because there's, I can just hear people yelling at their iPhone or whatever they're, they're listening to the podcast on is, um, trigger points, not the right definition. You say they don't exist. What would you be your definition of, of what someone is calling a trigger point? 
just for, so for people who are kind of you know frustrated <laughs> with what you said. Because I know I know it's out there. I, I have oh, this discussion with people all the time. I know. I know. You know what? But I, and as I say, before I talk about this when I'm teaching, John, I typically go, okay, there's a couple points that I really like to talk about because they typically cause the most cognitive dissonance in, in the people that I work with or that I'm teaching with. And so this is one. And I go into it and I'm like, and people get really upset at me. And I typically, you know, who's the most upset most of the time? Well, now more and more, it's, it's dry needlers. Oh, yeah. but, but besides that, it's strained, counter-strained people. They get really okay. upset with me. And so they, and so, uh, cause they're all, you know, they're all about the trigger point. So I would say what I would define it as a kink in fascial tissue, rather than it being one muscle that has a knot in it. That's what, you know, if that's my definition of how I, my interpretation of what a, tr- a trigger point has traditionally been, uh, traditionally been defined as right. And so rather than it being a knot in the muscle, I would say that really what it is, is it's a kink in the fascial lines like whether we have your superficial tissue which needs to slide past your deep tissue your deep tissue needs to slide past your deeper and the stuff that's left and right and above everything needs to slide past and when it can't particularly the superficial tissue particularly uh the superficial nerves and the peripheral nerves as they're coming into the fascia if they can't slide through those grommet holes then you're going to get the pain and then you're going to get irritation right and like uh, and so I would say it's a kink. It's the, it's the inability of that. And these are predictable patterns, right? Like how many you get like your upper trap or whatever you, you, you poke at a spot of where the nerve comes through the superficial nerve comes through. It's going to reproduce pain in predictable patterns. So we call it a trigger point, but I don't think it's really a trigger point. It's not a knot in the tissue. You're not getting rid of the adhesion. That's what the research shows. And that's what we've, we teach in rock tape, right? You're not getting rid of an adhesion. There's not there. What I think it is. So then the next question becomes that I always get is like, well, what am I feeling then? I feel a palpable response. I feel a pulse. I feel a whatever. I feel a slackening, a loosening, a, a you know, whatever of the tissue. What is that? And I will, I say, I throw it back on them. I say, well, what are you doing when you, you for the two minutes or so prior to that? You're probably like sitting on that tri- that quote unquote trigger point. Call it a trigger point because that's what everyone calls it and understand that language matters and we need to like anchor to words that we can all identify and be consistent with. So call it that. Right. But like, understand, like when you're poking at that, when you take your thumb and you jab into that spot, oh, right there, right there. And you just like sit on it for a minute or two for a consistent pressure of four to six for 30 to 90 seconds or so. What do you feel like that, that palpable response for me? Well, what is it? What, then I say to them, what are you stimulating? And I would say you're stimulating Ruffini endings. When you poke like that at a four to six intensity, which by the way, when I'm working on people and I touch a lot of people, I don't ever like to go above six or seven at the mm-hmm. very most intensity wise. Right. So if I'm at like a four to six and I sit at that and after a minute or two, I feel like a palpable, just relaxing of the tissue. What typically goes along with that? If you're paying attention to it is a sigh, a deep sigh or a, a, a stomach gurgle. And it's either from the patient or it's from <laughs> you. Because when you touch each other, right, like quantum physics, Ethan's going to be so upset. I'm mentioning I'll quantum do it. physics. Anything that makes but, Ethan mad. But when I touch it. quantum, when you touch somebody, when you touch somebody, your nervous system's interlock, right? We can't argue with this. And so, you know, we, ju- we, we just get into it from that from that component where we, you can uh, – uh, I, I'm rambling. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. But that that's what I think about as, as I start to work with people. No, it's great, man. And you and I can have uh... – discussions off air about energy and quantum physics and real cool stuff that we're probably both reading up on right now. But, um, all right. So I'm going to hesitate to ask this question, but, uh, I usually ask everybody, can you recommend any reading and, or what are you reading? And I think the answer for you is everything, but 
what can you give us a couple recommendations on some of the stuff you you've used over the years that have really helped you out that uh, anybody listening might want to kind of delve into? I've been listening to a lot of audio books because I have a little bit more of a commute now where I live. So I've been listening to a lot of audio books. Yeah, but I would, uh, well, a human locomotion. If you don't have that book, human locomotion by Tommy showed, I'd really recommend it. And you can get, if you go to human locomotion.org he's got some fantastic products and toe strengthening. We didn't even talk about the foot. I know you talked with it about Courtney, but with Courtney, but like, I'd love to have a conversation around the foot too. Cause I like the foot, but he's got some great information on it. So Tommy showed book, human locomotion. Uh, I I'm reading about the mind. I, I, Dan Siegel, I think is somebody that I really fascinated by. And he wrote, uh, uh, a book called Mind, and I think he wrote a book called uh, Brain-Based Parenting, and he does a lot around like uh, the neurobiology and, and understanding the process of the mind. I'm, I've been really fascinated by that understanding. Uh, I, I just bought a couple of books, and they're escaping me because um, I'm almost finished with this beer, and we've been on for a while, but... Uh, I just finished a book called Skin in the Game by Nasid Taleb. I really liked a lot. And he wrote a book called Black Swan. And one of the things he talks about is just the bullshit meter and, you know, uh, being able to identify, you know, uh, people. Uh, so I, I like Skin in the Game a lot. Principles is a great book that I also just recently read. Uh, and Principles is a great book that just talks about one of the things that interests me and we even talk about business and I'm growing, growing my clinical practice and we're, we're getting larger is uh, the concept of meritocracy rather than bureaucracy. I'm not really interested in like being anyone's boss. I want everyone to like be able to contribute equally and like so strategies to do that and, um, you know, grassroots ways through employees and and patience, all those kind of things to create meritocracy. So I love principles and anybody that's working, all my people that work for and with me uh, have read that book. In fact, I've bought it for a lot of people already. Um, yeah, I like that. Well, I don't know. Adam, do you read any fiction? Do you have time to read any fiction? No. I don't really read much fiction. I just, you know what? I've been meaning to read Siddhartha again. I love oh, yeah. Siddhartha. I really oh, love God. it. Uh, and I'm probably going to listen to it. And I really need to listen to it. I've been wanting, but no, I don't really read a lot of fiction. I watch... I watch a lot of movies and I watch, uh, like, I really like the Marvel stuff. We just started Luke Cage season two, episode one. I just finished it before we got on. Nice. Yeah. I got to get back into Daredevil. I haven't watched that since the first season, but I got kids. So I got an excuse. Yeah. I I have two kids. I understand. (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't read a lot of fiction. I don't read a lot of fiction. I, uh, I read a lot of things that maybe try to think and understand and integrate. I think one of my strengths, uh, I've taken the, you know, these risk, these personality profiles and whatnot. It, it's sort of, it seems to be two things. The first one is uh, bringing together things that don't seem to work together and synthesizing it and making it work. And then the second thing is bringing people, like people and ideas I'm able to bring together really well. So I like to read a lot of things that make me think that are, that seem desperate. But, you know, one of the things I do is like, as I write, and I'm writing another book right now is uh, uh, I have a journal that I just sort of write and find consistencies. And I think about like, you know, what are the consistencies across anything? Like, what can I just anchor to? Like if I read on neurology or I read on psychology or biology, or I read about philosophy or I read about science or whatever, I the politics, like what can I anchor to that for me becomes truth, uh, physical, behavioral, biological, or, uh, you know, however you want to look at it. Right. Uh, and that for me becomes, if I can anchor to that across the board, I'm going to try to use it in some way. Excellent. Whew, we're cooking with gas here, man. Let's turn that down. All right. So where are you going to be uh, in the next few months? Where can uh, anybody listening uh, catch you teaching for Rock Tape or uh, or any of your stuff? You didn't really get a chance to talk about some of your stuff too. Oh, 
I, uh, well, I, I, what do I got? I got something coming up in July. I've, I've really tried to cut, I just need to focus on a few other things. So I'm teaching a little less this year, but, uh, I'm teaching for rock tape in July up in, uh, Massachusetts, kind of outside of Boston, cool. I believe. And then in August, I'm teaching blades in Champaign, Illinois. I got some in September, October, November. So I've got things lined up. It's escaping me where you can find it though. John is at adamwolfpt.com Cause I have my schedule up there and I'm teaching a couple of courses, just movement based courses that are based on my book called real movement. Um, I'll probably be shooting for one in September in Chicago, probably October. I'm doing a couple in, uh, I'm doing Northern and Southern California in October. So, you know, I got things coming up. You can find it at adamwolf.com. I'm spacing it right now, dude. But, uh, I also have some online courses that you can check out. It's all at adamwolf.com. If you check that out, adamwolfpt. I can also Adam recommend to, um, the Facebook forum for uh, your book as well, too. If, if anybody, uh, is not on that, you know, check that out because Adam loves to post little, uh, I, I call them little brain teasers. You love to throw up little questions and then even ask for questions about stuff like that. And, and what, from what I've seen, it's really created a great, uh, great discussions and conversations amongst the group. So really cool thing to kind of pique your interest, uh, with that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's called real movement study group. I believe is what it's so other than there uh, on Facebook, where can we reach you on social media, Adam? I've gotten to be really consistent here, John. It's nice. So AdamWolfPT.com at YouTube. You can guess it. You want to? It's AdamWolfPT.com at Facebook, John. Guess is it, it is. AdamWolfPT? AdamWolfPT.com. Yeah, yeah. Come on. And then at Instagram, it is also AdamWolfPT. So I guess it's not .com on Facebook. It's just AdamWolfPT. And on Instagram, it's AdamWolfPT. <laughs> yeah, it's always AdamWolfPT. You find me there. And you can, you know, it's all uh, that you can find me all those wow. places. But yeah, it's good. I try to post. I've been less uh, consistent, but um, it's all good, dude. It's been fun. I try to be a little consistent. I try to do stuff. If I'm going to post at this point, like for a while, like, you know, just my personality, if you know me, I like to sort of just like poke the bear and step back and see the reaction. And that's my attitude to social media. A lot. Like if some people I would observe, I observe a lot. And then somebody would post something and I would be like, well, and I'll only ask questions at this point. And even then, like about like, if I know, if, if I know that it's going to start an argument, but I know that I have like a really good argument behind my, like, if I have a good explanation for why I'm jabbing, you'll be like, okay, well, why about that? And then they'll go and then I can discredit their argument. So I do that less and less. Um, just because I don't have the time, man. I'm trying to like be productive rather than destructive. I, love, I like that a lot. <laughs> that's a good quote. But that's a, that's so, that's social media for me. It's like easy to poke the bear. That's what fascinates me about social media. I can just poke. It's, it's so I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to just give things that add and that uh, you know, hey, like what? Ask the question. Why am I doing this? Or what? And and when I'm posting, no, it's about like I can really. I, I just try to make it like that, uplifting and, and productive for everyone. And I comment far less and less. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good yeah, place man. to end it, man. I love that quote. That's great, man. Yeah, so if anybody is looking to get uh, so much wealth of knowledge from Adam, go check him out at adamwolfpt.com. Go check out rocktape.com for any of the rock blades or rock tape courses that Adam may be teaching in the future. My good sir, Adam Wolf, thank you so much for joining me, man. This was great, John. Let's yeah, do it again soon. Take care. 